1: Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by Reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have terrific guests for today's show, including Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. He'll be calling in from Tel Aviv for we'll forward our conversation. We'll also visit with Larry Reed, the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. We'll be visiting about Frederick Tudor. The ice cream, uh, the ice magnet, I should say, not ice cream, ice magnet, Uh, such an interesting story. Uh, It is January the 18th, it is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. We'll talk about that in just a few moments. And on this day in 1919, in Paris, France, some of the most powerful people in the world met to begin the long, complicated, arduous negotiations that would officially mark the end of the First World War. Leaders of the victorious Allied Powers, France, Great Britain, and the United States and Italy, would make most of the crucial decisions of Paris over the next six months. For most of the conference, U.S. President Woodrow Wilson struggled to support his idea of a peace without victory and make sure that Germany, the leader of the Central Powers and the major loser of the war, was not treated too harshly. On the other hand, Prime Ministers George Clemenceau of France and David Lord George of Britain argued that punishing Germany adequately and ensuring its weakness was the only way to justify the immense costs of the war. In the end, Wilson compromised on the treatment of Germany in order to push through the creation of his pet project, an international peacekeeping organization called the League of Nations. Representatives from Germany were excluded from the peace conference until May, when they arrived in Paris and were presented with a draft of the Versailles Treaty, Having put great faith in Wilson's promises, the Germans were deeply frustrated and disillusioned by the treaty, which required them to forfeit a great deal of territory and pay reparations. Even worse, the infamous Article 231 forced Germany to accept sole blame for the war. This was a bitter pill many Germans could not swallow. The Treaty of Versailles was signed on June 28, 1919, five years to the day after Serbian nationalist bullet ended up the life of of Austrian Archduke Ferdinand Franz Ferdinand and sparked the beginning of World War One. In the decades to come, anger and resentment over the treaty and its authors festered in Germany. Extremists like Adolf Hitler, National Social Party, capitalized on these emotions to gain power, a process that led almost directly to the exact thing same thing Wilson and other negotiators in Paris in nineteen nineteen had wanted to prevent a second, equally devastating global war. Again, central planning just doesn't work. We need to get the input from the people. And clearly, that wasn't the case in the Versailles Treaty. Well, for more than a month, red tide has been lingering in patches along southwest Florida coastline from Marco Island to Captiva and beyond in high enough concentrations it can make a day or a week at the beach miserable. And in some places, it's killing fish. Played golf the other day, and we were all hacking a little bit from the air, and that was uh, east just slightly east of 41. Short-term red tide toxins can produce effects ranging from back-of-the-throat tickling to coughs to blinding headaches. In the animal world, it can sicken or wipe out fish, birds, and mammals like manatees and dolphins. Scientists are studying what it might do to to humans over time. Uh, Right now, as we know, there's no uh, long-term effects of red tide. It just uh, makes you cough. It's uncomfortable. And it's a natural phenomenon. I don't think there's anything we could do to rid ourselves of red tide. Well, here's a quote from C.S. Lewis that I came across this weekend, which was uh, totally appropriate to the Times. When the whole world is running off a cliff, he who is running in the opposite direction appears to have lost his mind. Doesn't that ring true in today's terms? Also, And as the great Earl Nightingale once said in one of his commentaries, and I couldn't find it, but nevertheless, I look, maybe it's my imagination, I think he said, if you watch what everyone else does and then do the exact opposite, you'll probably never make another mistake for the rest of your life. By the way, I distributed yesterday uh, The Strangest Secret. What a great, that's about 31 minutes of great listening. So these are some uh, Orwellian thoughts, so you could let them sink in as we move forward in these Orwellian times. Do we want to live in a society where Facebook and Twitter decide not only what is permissible to say, but even which narratives can be explored and which ones can't? Former executive from Facebook Alex Stamos called for conservative news outlets like OANN, that's uh, American News Network, and uh, Newsmax to be deplatformed during his appearance on CNN. discussing discussed the ongoing political polarization in America in the wake of November election and January six riot in Capitol, Stamos suggested that since people now are able to seek out the information that makes them feel good, an incentive exists for some outlets to become more and more radical, he said. Stamos said we have to turn down the capability of these conservative influencers to reach these huge audiences. Hmm. And then, Apparently jolted by the fact that Newsmax has skyrocketed to become the fourth highest rated cable news channel in the country, the liberal CNN is decrying what he calls Newsmax's election denialism and is seeking to have it de from cable and satellite systems across the nation. Oliver Darcy, CNN's left-wing media critic, has been demanding cable operators drop Newsmax, which is currently carried by every major system in the nation. Newsmax is also streamed free by most uh, platforms and devices. So my question is, do you want to have every aspect of our lives scrutinized by somebody else's measure of moral and ideological purity before you can say anything online? How about before you can book a hotel room or fill your car with gas, go shopping or get on a plane? I don't. After all, we all have big data and, and uh, artificial intelligence now, so that's all these things are very doable Do we really want to live within the constraints of a type of society uh, where you have a social credit system, where your every action, your very thoughts are bound by external and ever-shifting sub-subjective and revision of social mores, many of them defined by the most oversensitive, self-absorbed hysterics on social media? If you'd like this type of world, be careful, because if you think it's a good thing, you might end up on the wrong side of it, and it could be too late. So how should we respond? I think fighting back means embracing a small level of inconvenience in our lives. Economist Milton Friedman once said, There's no such thing as a free lunch. The principle holds true in our fight against big tech. Chances are that if a digital product such as Google's Gmail service is free, then you are the product. Services like these sell for information or individual profiles of demographics and interests. More importantly, these services empower companies that are intent on regulating your speech, making them flush with capital and able to exert even more control over our national discourse. Simply put, Americans should divest themselves from all products, services, and applications to give big tech over power over our lives. You may recall that uh, uh, Fox News was, uh, uh, I quite frankly think, turned on us on the day before the election, on election eve, And now they're—they really are suffering. Funny, Google and uh, uh, other outlets have uh, lost value. Facebook, uh, uh, Twitter, uh, because of their positions. I think uh, there can be uh, playback, can be for companies uh, turning on the American public, and that would be financial. I think that might be the very best solution for uh, the censoring that's going on. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Life in Naples Magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Okay, you just heard Mark Schulman ring in. Uh, he's in Tel Aviv right now, just coming off a television appointment uh, uh, interview. Uh, He's the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. We're going to visit with Mark that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. And you can get tickets now to Love Letters. We're playing right now, you'll go to gulfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, uh, we're going to be visiting with Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Right now we have with us, as I mentioned before the break, Mark Shulman, Mark is in Tel Aviv. He's uh, the fa- uh, author. He's written several books, mainly on past presidents. He's also the founder and publisher of a terrific multimedia website. I hope you visit it. It's called HistoryCentral.com. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bob. Thank you, Mark. And uh, so in Tel Aviv right now, we here. We're celebrating Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And I think it's appropriate to talk about what I think is a great man and his accomplishments in civil rights. Any thoughts?
2: Absolutely, Bob. I mean, Martin Luther King was a man for his time. Uh, he galvanized the civil rights movement in the United States. And We need to look back in history. We have to realize that, you know, before go back to World War II when for the first time African-Americans were given combat assignments and then when they came back they said they wanted equal rights and that was hard to get um, you know, President Truman was the first person who totally integrated the U.S. military, and then going forth, you had Brown versus um, Brown versus the Board of Education, mm-hmm. where the Supreme Court um, insisted on desegregation, and that of course led eventually to desegregation of universities and letting African Americans in. But you know, there was a lot of things that needed to get done, and he galvanized the movement. He pushed forward. The march on Washington, and um, that that march in Washington galvanized President Kennedy at the time to propose uh, wide-ranging civil rights um, legislation. The Legislation that first uh, made it illegal to deny African Americans um, lodging or restaurants, and basically desegregated all public spaces in the United States. And then after that, the year later, the I mean, year later in terms of the Johnson administration, because Kennedy was killed the Voting Rights Act, which eliminated poll taxes and other things that were impediments for African-Americans to vote. But he did all this with nonviolence in a belief that um, he can galvanize the people and if he galvanizes the people, he can get the support of all Americans. And he was, look, during his lifetime, he was controversial. As obviously, a lot of people hated him. And of course, at the end, he was assassinated once again by a white nationalist who um, didn't accept the idea that African-Americans are entitled to, to to equal rights, um, but he, he made tremendous progress, and he brought America one step closer to um, what will someday be. And sometimes we're close to it, and sometimes we pull we pull back and forth to his dream of a colorblind nation. Um, yeah, you know, we'll it's see it's
1: where that goes. Interesting, you mentioned he was killed by a white nationalist. I, I sometimes wonder if he wasn't uh, sought out by the CIA and uh, J. Edgar Hoover, uh, I still I still harbor some thoughts about okay, that. Okay, well,
2: you and your conspiracies, okay, but uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm much less of a conspiracy theorist than you are, so... Oh,
1: absolutely. So, uh, the other thing, though, is uh, right now we're seeing uh, uh, identity politics, and, and, you know, right now conflating the message of Martin Luther King, who basically said, I want my kids judged not by the color of their skin, but the quality of their character. What a great thought that is. That is a colorblind nation... But right now, uh, identity politics is uh, dividing us, and unfortunately, his true message, Martin Luther King's true message, is getting lost. I, I also wanted to score the importance of civil disobedience. He did all this by, by uh, his followers joining arms and saying, we're not going to fight physically. We're going to send our message through the power of our thought and, and through, the, through the people.
2: Absolutely, and that's, a, that's his biggest message um, overall. Uh, you know, I wonder... If Martin Luther King was still alive and he saw the America of today, on one hand, he would have been very proud and happy to have seen uh, President Obama as the first African-American president and Camilla Harris as the first uh, African-American uh, sort of vice president. Um, but, um, you know, there's still a way to go in, in every which direction. And sometimes you could overshoot as well. So we need to find the um, the right path forward.
1: Yeah, um, I would suggest I... race
2: remains to be one of the more difficult issues that the United in United States history. It's the one blot on American history: the fact that the Constitution allowed slavery, and didn't the founding fathers didn't want to deal with it. Basically, they kicked the they kicked the can down down the road. Basically, uh, when the Constitution was was uh, founded, they didn't they thought that, that slavery would die a, a death for economic reasons. They didn't know the cotton gin would be. Uh, developed, yeah. um, and that would make cotton such an important crop and slave so so um, valuable. So I, I'm not sure they kicked the don't can. Know what the consequences I, I'm not
1: be. sure they kicked the can down the road. I think it was a negotiating chip and a very difficult one to get through. Unfortunately, they couldn't come to a, uh, agreeing that uh, personal uh, individual liberty is more important than uh, the financial economic well being of the South. And uh, so we right
2: so uh, absolutely. I mean, yes, it, it was a negotiated. T- Solution, but basically, it was kicking the can down the road, hoping that it would, it would solve itself over the years.
1: Yeah, was yeah.
2: nothing solved itself. We ended up in a civil war. So,
1: yeah. The, the other point really I'd work. make is, I'm not sure we've made progress in the last few years. I think we've taken step backwards in terms of white fragility and uh, uh, identity politics and the things that we're suing on. It's all being weaponized, unfortunately, to the detriment, I think, of freedom of of Americans.
2: Absolutely, and social media unfortunately has a part. Yeah. In that, unfortunately, and the fact that we all live in our own little spheres of, uh, of worlds and news and everything else, and that, of course, makes the situation all that much worse. If someone said to me very recently, uh, maybe we could negotiate a lot of these differences, but social media is making it ever more difficult to do so.
1: Uh, I would agree with that. So, uh, Mark, uh, uh, you, you uh, suggested that we talk about something I'm, for which, with which I'm not familiar at all, and that's uh, the novelty arrest. Maybe you could tell us about it.
2: Yes, so he is the, he is the uh, leading dissident in Russia who had been uh, poisoned by the Russians and was saved by getting to Germany, where he was saved.
1: Oh, yes. Anyway,
2: he decided yesterday, I mean, he was planning all along that he was going to return to Russia. He is a leading critic of Putin. Yes. He returned to Russia about um, a few hours ago, and upon landing in, um, in Moscow, he was detained. By the Russian police. Huh.
1: Um,
2: what was his motivation? The leading, what was the his leading blo- dissident, the leading critic of Putin.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, and of course, Putin cannot stand anyone to criticize him in any which way. On what grounds they're holding him, I do not know. His lawyers do not know. Um, but the fact of the matter is, he has he was arrested, and um, we'll see what happens. But we need to remember the fact that uh, Russia is a bad actor. Yeah. And certainly, Vladimir Putin is the, the dictator. Um, so, you know, so is, time, is, is
1: he is he is Just the same a,
2: problem with China. So yeah,
1: is he is he being of, uh simply being a, 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 a martyr here, or did, what was his purpose in going? I mean, obviously, Putin wanted him dead.
2: I don't know. Maybe he wanted to be a martyr. I, I don't know. He looks like he's happily married. His wife traveled with him. I think he didn't believe that a Russian should live in exile and that the only way to bring about change in Russia was to do it from. Inside, maybe he thought that his worldwide notoriety was so great that Putin wouldn't dare try to kill him again. Uh, I don't know. Huh? I mean, uh, you know, what can I say? The man has more courage than I do. I certainly wouldn't have done that. No,
1: absolutely. I mean, he clearly was. uh, They attempted to poison him, and somehow, some way, he survived the process. And uh, uh, now back to Russia. Hmm. Kind of interesting. We'll see how that develops. Mark, I have so many other things I want to talk to you about. Can you stick around? Absolutely, Bob. All right, we're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden
0: Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. And that's just one of the great initiatives. You can find out more by visiting thefga.org. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Jim McTagg. Right now, we continue the conversation with Mark Shulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. Again, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bob. So, Mark, uh, right now we're in the midst of this COVID, uh, I want to call it the contagion, if you will. Uh, any thoughts, what's happening worldwide? I know that uh, right now you've been vaccinated, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, apparently the uh, almost everybody is getting vaccinated, in Israel. What's going on?
2: Correct. I've been. Back. I've read, I'm already a week after my second vaccination. So, as much as you can be immune, I am at this point, which I'm happy to say. Yeah. Uh, so, and others in my family have as well. Uh, look, there's a race going on in the whole world right now. The race is between the vaccines and the mutations. And the mutations, the British mutation, the South African mutation, and there's talk of an American mutation as well, seem to be uh, much more contagious. On the other hand, people are being vaccinated all over the world. Some countries are doing better than others. I mean, Israel is doing the best in the world, but that's because of its health system. Um, Britain has vaccinated a lot of people, but it's a lot more people to get vaccinated. United States is starting to, it's starting to get it back together, but it's still a long way to go. So that's really the question here is the question will be, can we vaccinate people fast enough versus the the contagion going up because of these new versions. It seems to be so much more contagious. But um, but unless, I'm afraid there'll be more pain before we get to the gain side of this. Yeah.
1: So so um, it, we'll, are the is are these mutations more? Uh, they are definitely more contagious. Are they indeed more uh, hazardous or uh, deadly? They
2: don't seem to be. There's a word of the the Russian mutation that is more hazardous, but so far it does not seem to have moved out of Russia. Best of Best we can tell, look, what every country should be doing, uh, Israel has made a big mess of it. The one part's made a big mess of it. It hasn't forced a COVID test for incoming passengers. The United States is finally doing it. Every country should be forcing those. If you want to come to whatever country it might be, you got to test you know, COVID negative before you can fly into a country because that's one of the ways of stopping these uh, various uh, changes in the virus and mutations from, from getting into the country.
1: So isn't but that it's a is, real challenge? Isn't that already in place?
2: It, the United States announced it's starting. I think starting tomorrow from that mistake. Oh, yeah, I think.
1: I think um, that's I'm important. not sure if this,
2: this. I'm not sure that the, the mechanism is in place hmm. in Israel. It's finally taking place in the next week or so. It, it should have happened in Israel, you know, almost a year ago because Israel only has one port event, and one real airport for entry and exit, so it would have been much easier. The United States, of course, has, I think, twenty five international airports, and of course. Makes it much more difficult, but both the Canadian and Mexican borders are closed, yeah. so that limits the amount of people that can come in. So, these are things that should have been done. You yeah. um, know, some countries have done it all along, and other countries have sort of ignored it, which is a mistake. But um, you know, it's, it's a race, and unfortunately, people will die in between. Uh, one of the things that seems to be the case, particularly in the British and the South African uh, variations, that seems to be hitting younger people. Um, more than than the original one was, and making them sicker. So making of them course sicker. A concern.
1: Interesting. Well, let's let's move to some other uh, uh, foreign affairs, including uh, Iran's enrichment of uranium and the whole notion of uh, the uh, Iranian nuclear deal. Right. So, so
2: look, the United States pulled out of the nuclear deal a little over two years ago. Uh, the idea was maximum economic pressure, and that would bring the Iranians to heel, and then then maybe President Trump could negotiate a better deal. That was never quite clear. Um, the reality is that maximum pressure has worked in the sense that it's hurt the Iranian economy a great deal. Their power shortages, you name it, there are sorts of problems. But it has not stopped the nuclear program, which they've resumed. So they've right. said, okay, if the United States has walked away from the nuclear deal, then we'll walk away as well. And they haven't completely walked away, but they've walked away many important aspects, and they've been enriching uranium up to 20%. And as I understand it, moving from 20% to weapons grade is not at all difficult. Um, and they've been doing other things that violate the agreement. So the big question is, what do you do now? Uh, clearly, maximum economic pressure was not going to work the minute it was clear that the United States was not going to engage in military pressure as well. So right now, the only choice is to re-enter some sort of an agreement. The question is: Can you get a better agreement than what you had previously? Yeah. The major, major problem with the old agreement was the fact that it's sunshine. In other words, after ten years, certain aspects of it uh, no longer
0: exactly.
2: um, no longer in effect. We're now five years into that ten year period, so I would doubt it makes any sense for the Biden administration to re-enter uh, the current agreement if it sunshines in five years. What, um, what about the impact? So those are the questions. Um, it's a real challenge, and you know, it's also, uh, while it's maybe the number one challenge facing the Biden administration on the world scene, there's you know, there are plenty of challenges facing it domestically right now, and so we'll see how much effort can go into that. I know here in Israel, everyone's very concerned about that, and one of the big questions is how much Prime Minister Netanyahu is planning to challenge the Biden administration on this matter. Um, big, big questions, and... Uh, well, what's necessary is a much better agreement. Can you get a much better agreement? That's, that's a big question.
1: Yeah, so what difference does the Abraham Accords have on uh, what's happening with Iran and the uh, peace in that area?
2: Well, look, the Abraham Accords made public what would really existed uh, privately in terms of the um, the cooperation between Israel and the Gulf states, both security-wise, intelligence-wise. Those, that's been going ongoing. I mean, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, is the old statement, and... That's how the, the um, ties with, between Israel and those countries came about. Um, it, clearly, it helps put a counter-pressure on Iran. Uh, the idea that you know Israel could have an advanced base, theoretically, and right close to Iran certainly makes the ability of Israel to um, extend its uh, firepower right. much, much better. Um, but in terms of the cord, I don't know. I don't know how much pressure that brings. Uh, it, it's really... Um, you know, again, Iran is this place that that is so hard to understand because ultimately its leaders are driven by religious beliefs. So they 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 have this dual thing. On the one hand, they have what they want to accomplish their religious beliefs, but above and beyond everything else, they want to stay in power.
1: Yeah, and so, and the interesting thing too is the people have been under the uh, I, uh, under the Shah. Experienced uh, Western, uh, a Western way of life of uh, capitalism and so forth, and uh, it's just amazing to me that they can maintain power, even though I'm quite certain the people don't necessarily support that power.
2: Yeah, but you know, dictators can main, remain power for a long time, especially when they're when they have a religious aspect to them. You don't remember something? it's Been 42 years since the Shah was uh, thrown out of Iran. Uh, you know. How old do you have to be to remember the remember the Shah? It has to be people our age who yeah. remembered living under the Shah.
1: Yeah,
2: uh, people younger than us, you know, they were either kids or they weren't born yet.
1: Yeah, interesting. So,
2: so, so, keep so that in mind as well. But yes, they're well educated. They have a direction to want to be a part of the world and part of the West. But between that and dealing with. Religious fundamentalists—it's a very difficult problem, you know.
1: And the, the, and worst, the economic decline—the worst
2: situation in politics is mixing religion and politics, and yeah. that's why the founding fathers is so brilliant—the idea of separation of state and church. Agreed. Church, go pray to whoever you want to pray to. Leave the politics to um, aside, and those things should always be separate. And for a healthy democracies and healthy countries
1: all over the world, right. I, I'll just add that I think the economic pressure on the people right now, the uh, inflation out of control, the COVID-19 out of control, uh, I just don't know how long they can sustain uh, that power. Let's move to uh, Afghanistan. You know, the
2: issue is you're right, but as I said on air 10 minutes ago, or whatever, 20 minutes ago, I said, the, how, for how many years have we been saying the Iranian regime is about to fall? Yeah. And been, been more than a few years, let's put it that
1: way. Well, I'll come back to Martin Luther King Jr., who we talked about. I mean, ultimately, the people will decide that you had civil disobedience here against tremendous odds, if you recall, with regard to the uh, uh, the Dixiecrats and and the pressure they had on uh, keeping separate yeah, but Martin people. Luther
2: King ultimately had an ally which was called, by and large, the federal government and the Supreme Court. The demonstrators in Iran have no such an ally in power,
1: yeah.
2: and that's a real problem.
1: Good point. You know,
2: the, the federal government may not have agreed with everything Martin Luther King did or every particular of his actions, but overall, uh, whether it was President Kennedy or Johnson and even Eisenhower at um, the beginning of Martin Luther King's uh, tenure or career, all believed in what he was trying to achieve. Yeah. So it's very different, and let's keep that in mind. It's very difficult to come up against uh, the power of a government that's willing to kill its own people. We saw that in Syria. Look, at look, Assad is still in power after all this time. Yeah. All the blood, all the people gave their lives, and Assad came out on top because he was willing to destroy his country and kill his people. Yeah, and That's a real problem.
1: It is indeed. Uh, before I let you go, I do want to talk to you about Afghanistan. We've drawn down troops now to 2,500. It's kind of a police-keeping force right now. What are your thoughts?
2: Well, right now there's pretty much chaos in Afghanistan, Yesterday, two women judges were, were assassinated by the Taliban. Um, everyone in Pakistan, in in Kabul, is afraid for their lives. They don't know what's going to happen. Um, you know, if United States pulls out now, it's good luck to all these people, all of who we support all these years. Again, this is an impossible situation. I yep. think we've discussed it. There's no easy solutions. You know, we can't stay there forever and get hidden if we pull out everything we try to accomplish in terms of women's rights and everything else, it'll all be for, for naught. And then, of course, we never know when al-Qaeda could reestablish their bases in Afghanistan. So, you know, it, it, it is a real, real problem that there's no good solutions for. And maybe sometimes there aren't good solutions. You know, we, we Americans and we in the West generally seem to think there's a solution to every problem and sometimes yeah. there isn't
1: well sometimes maybe maybe the, best, maybe the best solution is to mind your own business <laughs> you <know? laughs> we're mining yeah, our-, we mind
2: our own business but then look what happened on 9-11 you know it doesn't we're, we're an inter- interconnected world um, oceans don't protect us um, so it's, it, it's not easy you know we tried that a little bit between world war one and world war two and found ourselves in world war two yeah. So. Um, but, but, Not but, easy.
1: Yeah, but again, I think it was mainly central planning versus letting the people speak, which led to World War Two. The uh, w- What was done in Versailles in 1990, which, by the way, has started on this day, uh, I think was a travesty, which led yeah, to World War II. Yeah, but that
2: doesn't explain Japan, for instance. Yeah. Uh,
1: Good point.
2: Japan's expansionism and their feeling of superiority uh, and the need to, ex- to expand by... It had nothing to do with Versailles. It had nothing to do with uh, policy in Europe. Uh, so, yes, you can make the argument that Hitler might not have come to power if they were smarter than Versailles, but he did come to power, you know. He, and um, what happened, uh, and we weren't able to keep away. And, and you know, Osama bin Laden came to power within, the, within Al-Qaeda. And there are be bad and evil people out there. It doesn't matter how you define it. They exist, you know, they existed throughout history. They exist today in various places in the world. And it's uh, a country's responsibility to protect its people from those evil, terrible people.
1: And unfortunately, and, uh, those e- terrible, evil people many times rise to power. <laughs> that's leading the absolutely, government. Absolutely,
2: that's the problem. And, and there lies, lies the challenge. Yeah. And that's why uh, you can't close your eyes on the world, and you can't go back into your cocoon because it's too small a the world these days. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure it was even possible prior, you know, maybe prior to World War One. In those days, maybe... But the United States has always been an interconnected country, and certainly today in the age the age of the Internet, the age of uh, supply chain, all these other things, it's, it's one world, and we have to deal with whatever's out there, yeah. for better or for worse.
1: We'll, we'll leave it at that, Mark.
2: That no E2 solutions often.
1: Yeah, we'll leave it at that. We'll always have much more to talk about, but I genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. Again, HistoryCentral.com is the website. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Have a great week, Robin. You as well. Thank you. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with Larry Reed, the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Bob Harden Show, and now here's your host, Bob Harden.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. And right now, Love Letters is playing. You can get to two great actors. I hope you will get tickets right now. Visit dot playhouse.org Coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. Right now we have with us Larry Reed, the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Larry, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Bob. Thank you. My pleasure, indeed. I love the organization you represent, and uh, tell us about the Foundation for Economic Education.
3: Okay, <clears throat> thank you, Bob. We are focused on young people of high school and college age. We try to teach uh, and inspire them in ideas of individual liberty, free markets, limited government, and personal character, and we do that through our website, which is fee f e e dot org and also events all over the country and beyond uh, all throughout the year.
1: Yeah, and uh, I've been to those events. They are truly inspiring to see people of high school and college age getting excited about individual liberty and uh, the Constitution, and I hope our listeners will check out uh, uh, the website fee.org, F-E-E.org. Larry, uh, true to, to you, your uh, mission uh, you've written a column about a terrific guy, an uh, f- uh, entrepreneur in the previous century, uh, Frederick Tudor, the entrepreneur who uh, brought uh, brought ice to Calcutta. What an interesting story. Maybe you can tell us about it.
3: Okay. If you can turn your mental clock back to 1806, that's, what, 215 years ago. Yep. Imagine you're 23 years old, you live in New England, uh, you're searching for a way to make a fortune, You've already declined an opportunity to attend Harvard at your father's expense because you've really wanted to make a go at business in some way. And so now you have to decide, are you going to go to work for somebody else in an established trade, or are you going to start something new? And you come up with an idea to cut giant ice blocks out of the ponds of uh, Massachusetts in the wintertime, and then put them on ships and send them to steamy, hot Caribbean islands (laughs) which is a journey of a couple weeks or more, and that's where you'll sell the ice uh, to people who've probably never seen frozen water in their lives, and uh, then they'll love it so much there'll be no end to their demand for it, and go into debt to get it all done. I mean, if that were you, you'd have a lot of people say to you, are you nuts?
1: Yeah, exactly. And
3: that's exactly (laughs) what happened to Frederick Tudor, but he did it. Uh, After some bumps along the way, he started... Uh, shipping ice to tropical climates ultimately as far away as Calcutta, India.
1: Well, you know, it could start out as ice, but it certainly could end up as a pool of water. What did he do to to, uh, somehow (laughs) refrigerate or to keep the ice as ice? Yeah,
3: this is decades before any kind of refrigeration mechanism or device. And so he had to insulate the ice on board the ship. And he did that largely through sawdust, Uh, layers and layers of sawdust uh... and uh... It, it still didn't work perfectly because uh... about forty uh, percent sometimes of the ice by the time he got it to the destination would have melted and early on he didn't make any money he was losing money on this but he kept looking for ways to uh, improve the uh... insulation of the ice and speed up the ship a little bit and he made some improvements there and before too long uh, after a stint in debtor's prison, <laughs> he uh, was making some money, and, then it, uh, and that was to the Caribbean and to Southern American ports. But when he really made his money is when he decided he was going to try to go the 16,000 miles halfway around the world and sell ice in Calcutta. And uh, that, that was not easy, but he made a lot of money uh, for the next 25 or more years.
1: What a fascinating story. And I just want underscore the, the whole notion that, as usual, success is not a straight line. You get a good idea. Sometimes you meet bumps in the road, obst- obstacles, uh, problems, uh, people who don't support you, uh, government. Did he have the same types of issues?
2: Yeah,
3: he had a lot of bumps uh, along the way. At, at first, in fact, so many, you'd, you wonder how uh, what, what would make him uh, continue to try to make this uh, a profitable business. In fact... Um, uh, by, he started this in 1806, and by 1812 he found himself in bankruptcy in debtor's prison, and he was a laughingstock among the know-all's of uh, Boston's elite. But Frederick Tudor uh, was not the kind of guy to give up. In fact, one of my favorite, my absolutely favorite quote uh, from him is this. He wrote it in his diary. He said, he who gives back at the first repulse, and without striking a second blow, and who despairs of success, has never been, is not, and never will be a hero in war, love, or business. And so he just kept at it until he figured out how to make it profitable, and, and he did. And he made himself a very wealthy man, largely because of that very profitable ice business uh, from New England to Calcutta, India.
1: You know, I, and ultimately, just to underscore the whole notion of creative destruction, it was doomed to failure over time once refrigerated. I mean, Florida, we, we exist in Florida because of uh, refrigeration techniques, but uh, irrespective, it goes goes to show that the best ideas opso- uh, often become obsolete.
3: That's right. Uh, Tudor died in 1864, and when he did, he he was a very wealthy man, and By that time, there were lots of competitors and rivals in the business. But about uh, 40 years later, the business died rather quickly when uh, we found ways uh, mechanically to create our own ice. So there's no sense in bringing it from 16,000 miles from New England if you've got an ice machine in Calcutta.
1: Uh, Yeah, what a great story, and uh, this is uh, typical of the stories, Larry, that you write, which are object lessons for young people to understand, to take personal responsibility for their own lives, to understand the challenges ahead, and to make good decisions for themselves and uh, be, uh, well, champions of liberty.
3: Absolutely, and Tudor was certainly a, a sterling example of an entrepreneur who saw a need he saw uh, something that others didn't see. He took great risk, and he had uh, tremendous uh, initiative and energy, and he made it happen. And proving, I think, that uh, entrepreneurs typically dream big, bigger than most people, and they're willing to put their money and their their lives and their uh, uh, their good f- their their fortunes uh, at stake in mm-hmm. order to make big things happen.
1: You know, I listened to uh, Earl Nightingale's "The Strangest Secret" this weekend. Shared it with uh, many of my listeners, and uh, uh, the the theme here it pretty much uh, is um, is uh, represents the message that we hear from Earl Nightingale in "The Strangest Secret."
3: Yes, same message, and thank you for sending that to me too. I remember Earl Nightingale from oh my gosh, must be uh, fifty five years ago yeah. listening to him. Uh, on the radio and that particular episode that you sent me uh, and and other people uh, really speaks to this uh, matter of entrepreneurship and and carving out your own future.
1: Absolutely. Again, Larry Reed, the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education, please check out the website, very robust website fee.org, f e e.org. Larry, I always appreciate your commentary. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure indeed. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau chief and author of a couple of great murder mysteries, uh, The Follow the Leader and its sequel, Uh, Shake the Money Tree. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Bob Harden.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. I want to do a little shout out to Bee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center. Great place to get breakfast or lunch and I hope you visit Bee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center. We have with us Jim McTagg as I mentioned before the break. He's former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. He's written a couple of great murder mysteries since his retirement. The first is Follow the Leader. The second and its sequel, Shake the Money Tree. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, it's a
4: uh, pleasure, Bob. I'm, I'm calling from the, the periphery of uh, Fort Fort uh, Washington, D.C. Holy mackerel. You know, as they, as they prepare for the inauguration. And uh, I can't go to the inauguration because uh, all the bridges between northern Washington, or uh, northern Virginia and Washington, uh, the bridges leading to downtown will be closed to uh, automobile, a bicycle and foot traffic from Tuesday through Thursday. Uh, it's, Jim, can it's you crazy. can you
1: can you comment on this? I mean, to me, I have uh, I don't think the president necessarily who who is arranging this? What what's going on?
4: Well, uh this is a uh, uh, an overreaction to the uh the invasion of of the Capitol. You know, the 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 capital police were underprepared mm-hmm. for the uh the marchers uh, the people who who stormed um, the the capital i i think you know i was talking to some street level cops and they you know the the assumption was that the crowd uh would be raucous but festive uh, that they wouldn't be violent and of course uh uh the crowd had an element that the, i compared to the uh, uh street gang ms13 you know it had it had the crazies who yeah yeah uh, yeah, you know they have. Uh, they're the kind of people who call, who have high caliber rifles at home, but they're low caliber intellects, and they storm the capital. So now, it's the um, it's it's typical of the way humans react. It's massive overreaction.
1: Yeah, but who's and, who's reacting, Jim? I, mean, I can't imagine who's who's arranged for all these people. Is it uh, Mayor Bowser? Is it who's who made the phone call to make this happen?
4: Well, yeah, I only know what I see in. Uh, on television and reading in the newspapers, it's Republicans and Democrats. It's uh, it's uh, members of Congress, especially Democratic uh-huh. members of Congress, who want to make sure that the uh, inauguration goes off without street battles. And it's also hangovers from the Trump administration, who got caught by surprise by the uh, violent reaction of the crowd, and they don't want to be. Uh, Held accountable for a repeat of, of that horrible incident. So, right.
1: so so interesting. I, I, in my opinion, I quite frankly, in my view, uh, it, I Trump. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Biden. Quite frankly, is not going to draw people at this at all. Quite frankly, and I think that what will happen probably is most people turn off their TVs uh, on from uh, noon until one o'clock on uh, Wednesday during the inauguration. I don't think I don't think people are I don't think anybody's going to show up, quite frankly. So,
4: well, well the other reason is people in this area can't get their vaccines, and, and it's a total fiasco. I mean, you can sign up on a list, uh, but then uh, once you're on the list, getting an appointment and actually uh, having a vaccine at that appointment is uh, very oh, yeah. iffy at this point. So, you know, people who who don't want to catch the COVID are, are are not going to go to um, a massive
1: event good 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 point uh, Jim uh, you know we got all these uh, Guatemalans marching up through uh, Mexico I guess with the notion that quite frankly uh, President Biden is going to have uh, free reign and, and allowing people to come in undocumented uh, foreigners to come into the United States uh, any thoughts on that
4: yeah I mean this is a um, a, a humanitarian crisis that that, that uh, we can't respond to in part because of COVID. I mean, uh, you know, you would think uh, what's happened is uh, the three countries, like Guatemala, uh, El Salvador, and Honduras are among the poorest nations in the world. Yep. They have corrupt governments and they've been hit by uh very hard by COVID. And they've been hit by a hurricane, which uh, destroyed uh, like uh, most of their economy of our Honduras. Yep. And so, you know, they have relatives in the United States that say we're in heaven, and these people have nothing to lose. Now, the United States has, uh, you know, un- under Trump, given these countries over a billion dollars in aid to prevent uh, these mass migrations. Uh, but the money has going largely into law enforcement, you know, uh, batons and, and tear gas. And then it's been siphoned off by the corrupt uh, leadership, which uh, (laughs) in Honduras, the allegation is that the uh, uh, leader is, is Hernandez is also a uh, drug lord. So the the bottom line is uh, USAID has uh, done nothing to improve the lot of the everyday person. They're starving to death. Uh, They're they're dying from uh, COVID. And so uh, they start, oh, and then, uh, you know, during the campaign, Joe Biden announces that, it's going to be easier under his administration to gain asylum. So this this is a perfect formula for a massive uh, march, and it's from Guatemala, and it's scaring authorities in Honduras and Mexico because they fear all these infected people coming through right. uh, when they can hardly handle their COVID crisis as it is. And plus, uh, they fear losing U.S. aid, so they're breaking heads at the border. And I mean... Your hearts have to go. Your heart has to go out to these people. You know, or, in ordinarily ordinary times, uh, uh, church organizations and and organizations like the Red Cross would be able to provide some aid to people in these countries. But yeah. because of COVID, uh, we're all pretty much uh, locked down. And
1: very so, sad uh, d- indeed. In fact, uh, I've heard a statistic, and I, uh, don't hold me to this, but I've something like. 30 or 40 percent of the women on these uh marches to the you know, u.s border ended up being raped and uh it's it's a very sad situation frankly i i mean i'm all for people we need immigration in this country but i think it should be uh we should have merit based uh immigration and it should be basically on our terms but we we need we need millions of people coming to the country because quite frankly our birth rate is so low that we're not going to be able to sustain our population unless we do. But we should be able to choose the people that come in. Uh, and uh, well, the other thing, I want, I want to do a little shout-out to the president of Mexico, who is working to keep uh, law and order and working to keep uh, people at bay from coming into this country. So uh, shout-out to him as well.
4: Yeah, Here's the moral dilemma. Uh, we do need immigrants, but we we are developing what I call the gray matter economy. And, and we can all see it. I mean, I mean, if if you and I were enrolling in the, the university today, you know, I was a liberal arts major. Yeah, uh, that's a lose lose proposition now. Right, right. You know, in order to make uh, money, you have to go into the sciences. You know, but frankly, I did. I was not uh, gifted in the sciences, so who knows where I would have ended up. Mm-hmm. But the gray matter economy—if if we want to select the immigrants who will uh, advance the economy uh, of the country. We're looking at the very educated people, the best and the brightest. And this leaves hundreds of millions of people mired in poverty. So I'm not suggesting that we open our borders to everyone. That would be uh, suicide. But you know, how do we get to the root of the problem and discourage people from wanting to come to this country in the first place without bashing their heads in.
1: Well, uh, in my view, you're raising interesting points, the moral dilemmas, the whole thing. Whatever we do, it should be based on law and order rather than just having illegal people come into the country. You know, I'm all for if we we want to have 30 people, uh, 30% of the people coming in who can cut our lawns, that's fine. You know, somebody should be making these decisions that should be based on just total chaos over the border.
4: Yeah, the problem is that these South American governments, these corrupt governments, are using American aid to establish a police state uh, response, as opposed to a humanitarian response. So, so they're like little North Korean dictators trying to keep their people in. Uh, and if people are starving and dying of disease, uh, you know, uh, bullets and and sticks are not going to prevent them from trying to get out of that place. Yeah,
1: you, you're absolutely right, and I would say that happens to be. You know, in my view, the globe is pretty much run by punks and thugs, <laughs> and they all have the same behavior. They, chase, they take from the poor and uh, make and feather their own beds. Unfortunately, uh, that's that's the rule. There are exceptions, uh, certainly. Jim, always appreciate your commentary. I do want to mention your bo- two books because they are great murder mystery reads. Uh, Follow the Leader and its sequel, Shake the Money Tree. I genuinely appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. Well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, Tomorrow, we're going to visit with uh, Kathleen Pasadomo, our state senator. Seton Motley, the founder and president of Less Government, will be with us. We'll find out what's new with Boo. Boo Mortson right here on the Paradise Coast. And my wife Linda will be joining us as well. Always appreciate your comments on the show. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com. bobharden at hotmail.com. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste.